All right, everyone, before we jump into this episode, super excited about our newest sponsor, Reserve. Big shout out to Reserve. They are the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. If you don't know Reserve, we're super excited about them here at Bell Curve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Welcome to the last episode of season two of Bell Curve, folks. Uh, this is the episode where you get to hear Mike and my unfiltered thoughts on the season and these episodes. So Mike, you look, uh, you look surprisingly warm for it being negative 40 degrees where you are. <laughs> well, I am inside, but yeah, it is, it is extremely <laughs> cold in, in, uh, in big sky, actually Montana right now, I moved from Bozeman to big sky. And yeah, it is, it's a uh, fun fact. They actually won't fly at this temperature because the jet fuel freezes. So that happens at negative 30 degrees. I didn't think that was the threshold that I was necessarily going to cross, but there you go. I'm trying to remember who's, whose call I was on yesterday but someone had a oh Sam Martin who leads our research team he had gloves on inside because his heat broke so uh at least you're not at the at the gloves on stage devastating no no you can see my these 10 beautiful babies here yeah (laughs) ungloved I never need to see your wiggling hands again so uh with, with that let's uh let's let's get into the finale huh yeah let's let's talk about the season I thought I thought this like let's you know to briefly do a retrospective on the first two seasons that we've done. I think what we concluded going into season one or at the end of season one, which was the advent of uh, DeFi native bar- fixed lending, uh, fixed lending borrow markets, we thought that that thesis was right, but too early. In in this, I think when doing the retrospective on this past season and, and what did we learn about governance, I think it ended up less about being a specific thesis and more of a sort of an exploration of a lot of different ideas and narratives that you hear forming around governance. And honestly, I mean, this, this will be the devil's in the details, but I think I kind of came away believing in some of them more strongly, albeit with a bit more nuance. And ultimately a lot of the things that you hear are valuable about DAOs and decentralized governance. I think we did a pretty good job of debunking in this season. So I thought, uh, overall, I think I learned a lot. Yeah. yeah, It felt different from season one in that the season one was really going up against like testing this thesis that we had. This really was, and I, I think because DAOs and like this just explorations on governance, it's still so early. This was more of an exploration. At least that's how I realized like a couple episodes in that we were treating it. And that's, uh, I found it really interesting. And we went down some like pretty weird rabbit holes that I liked. And it did... I was, I'll say I learned some new things, which we should talk about. And I, it also confirmed some of the things I was thinking about going in, going into this about DAOs. So, yeah, I agree. Well, how do you want to do this? Do you have any big like themes that you want to talk about? Do you have any, do you want to go like episode by yeah. episode? I'd love to talk about the big themes and some of your takeaways. I'd like to start with big themes. So okay, cool. just a really important refresher. And we kicked this, this entire season off with this idea of business, uh, product governance fit. And that is the episode that we did with Hasu and Chris. And the idea there being that in addition to the pretty familiar concept of product market fit, uh, in crypto, there's an added layer there, which is the t- the governance needs to fit the type of product that you're trying to create. So big takeaway number one from the season is I think that I think that we're generally trying to extrapolate one particular form of decentralized governance to a bunch of protocols that it doesn't necessarily apply to. That's what I think. I think you probably can root that in a lot of ways. You know, we've talked in in these episodes about taking ideas 
from Bitcoin, just because Bitcoin was the first that don't necessarily make sense, like the fixed token supply cap. We talked about that in the episode with Chris and and Fernando. And I think we sort of borrowed a very similar rule and lesson from Bitcoin governance and Ethereum governance. And we're trying to blanket have that apply to basically every crypto protocol. And the answer is I don't think it applies. Hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the two, so the Hasu and Chris episode was such a good episode to set up the season because there were these two big tensions that were outlined in that episode that then persisted throughout the entire season. And it made mm -hmm. me realize even, even in that last episode talking with um, with Nick from ENS, it was the same tensions that existed that Chris and Hasu brought up uh, on episode one, which was one, like governance fit versus maturity of the DAO. Right, like Bitcoin and ETH can have these kind of like slow governance systems because they're super mature. Um, and we can't just take those like really slow governance systems and replicate them into new startups, right? So there's this like governance fit on a, on a maturity timeline or a maturity spectrum. So that was one thing that was like came through in the entire season. And the next was another theme that was in episode one and in episode seven with Nick, which was public goods versus expectation of return. And, um, that persisted through that, that that's the probably the biggest thing that i've been thinking about is like what form of governance you should have is often should should probably be predicated on how like deep down in the stack you are and like how much of a public good you are in a sense yeah i think i actually would separate those i think those are two sort of different ideas so the the one thing that again came from the chris hasu episode was depending on where you are in relation to the base layer infrastructure of everything that we're building in crypto, probably as a general rule of thumb, the better it is to have decentralized governance. The best two examples that I can point to there are Ethereum and crypt and Bitcoin, which are at the yeah. very base layer. And that's where you start to get some of these benefits of decentralized governance. This is basically the most compelling pro in the decentralized governance camp, which is if the government decides that they don't like Bitcoin, they can't haul up the CEO of Bitcoin and demand that they stop it. It is a much more, it's still possible to do, but it's much more difficult to stamp out. And then you can kind of move one layer up and you can look at, okay, on top of these very base money protocols or you know smart contract layers, then you have one layer above, which is basic financial infrastructure. And that could be your compounds or your Aves. That is somewhat more consumer facing but it's also still very base and foundational to like basic financial functions. So you probably don't want something that's necessarily as decentralized as Bitcoin or, or ETH governance, but like you start to kind of layer up and ultimately at the top of that stack, something that's very consumer facing that doesn't set at the very base layer of infrastructure, something like a game. I don't know, like games don't need to have super decentralized governance. I don't think I, I think right, the I game, yeah. it's yeah. like a, you're directing a movie. You need like one person with a vision who can create a world like Tolkien or James Cameron, even though I heard Avatar 2 kind of sucked, but you need <laughs> one person with a vision who can create that. And it's not ultimately that important because if the game isn't good, the game's not good. It doesn't really matter. Whereas base layer financial infrastructure is deeply important and foundational to how people live their lives. So I think that's a real, yeah. that was a really important point. Let me, let me ask you this now, having done these seven, seven interviews or seven episodes, do you, why does the base layer need to be more, why like have, have that slower governance feature and like be, be a DAO? Is it because it needs to be, is like resilience, the key thing that you're fighting against there or fighting for? I, th 
I think this is where the the Vitalik paper that we also referenced early, earlier in the season convex comes into versus it. concave decisions. Yeah, there's like a yeah. couple. There's like convex versus concave decisions. I personally think that actually we'll get into this into a second. But the maturity yeah. of an organization, and then there's um, you know censorship resistance, which I think is kind of you, you ultimately want those things at the at the base layer of society to be not able to you know you don't want big centralized powers to be able to corrupt that and then there's also this idea of credible neutrality as well which is you want everyone to basically believe that it's operating in a fair way mm -hmm. like you don't want the things that you and i need and rely on to to be influenced by uh you know a small a small outsized group of people so that's why i sort of think that it's kind of like I actually thought this was a really apt analogy. I've never heard anyone talk about it, but Hossi referenced this he, when he brought up utility companies because you and I said, well, this doesn't really exist in corporate America, right? And he said, absolutely not. There's different layers of regulation. You could look at utility companies where utility company, you and I need it, dude, totally inelastic good, right? Where it doesn't really matter how much power costs. I'm in negative 42 degree temperatures right now. I'm going to pay whatever it is, right? <laughs> and the government and society writ large has said, yeah, I know that you would pay that, but we don't want you to be able to charge that because ultimately, like, we all want power. We all want to live our lives. So the government literally steps in and said, you know, you are allowed to invest this much in CapEx as a utility and you are allowed to earn this much as a return on that CapEx. And they regulate that. And I think that's a there's going to be mm. a similar yeah. decision that happens around the, the more base layer infrastructure and I don't really know how that ends up getting dictated. I think we all as a community have to make yeah. a decision for what, what we think is. How, how do you tie together? How do you tie together that thought that you just had, Mike, about the utility companies um, and not act like the utility company there is not maximizing the value that they could kind of pull right. out of society, right? How right. do you, uh, it reminds me of what Nick said, which is like lower level infrastructure as public goods. And he made this he's had that statement, right? He's like, I'm not maximizing value capture for the shareholders because totally. ENF doesn't have any. So how do you mirror those two thoughts together? Okay. So two big takeaways just to review is that we're generalizing a form of governance, which applies to a very small subset of protocols to like all protocols. And that that's creating tension. Then there's this idea of the way that we think about decentralized govern governance popularly only applies to those base layer infrastructure type protocols. Go, the the next two fundamental tensions that I think came from this this series was one even in those cases where there's a big premium on immutability right it, it, like a, a premium on things not changing that still only applies to mature organizations whereas the vast majority of protocols and DAOs today are immature so you're tr you're trying to apply a form of governance which makes sense at a very late stage of the organization to a very early stage organization that would be like with BlockWorks when we were six months old, trying to basically adopt the governance of a full-scale public company, you know, where we have a, a board of directors and shareholders and they're all weighing in on decisions. And realistically at that period of time, you know, you and I were kind of driving a lot of the decisions and now we're decentralizing decision-making even in BlockWorks. And that's probably gonna be the trend for, hopefully BlockWorks is around for a long time, but that'll be basically the trend. So there's a big tension in between maturity of organization and the type of governance that people wanna use. Second is this idea of public goods. This one, I don't have a great answer for you because the, the tension there is that everyone likes the idea of a public good. I want these things to just operate in a way that's free and provides a lot of value to me as a potential user. But then 
most of these public goods have a token and they expect that token to go up. And my point to you just would probably be that I just don't see how those two things are necessarily compatible because right. the token should go up because returns are being maximized, right? For the token holders. Right, right. It's it's like having a public, like a, if you think about public goods, like a public park or something, like you, it's right. a public, it'd be like having a public park where you have to charge for entry or like you're, there's a stock associated with the public park. Like those are directly at odds with each other or street right. lighting, like pay, paying for the street light. Uh, it, it's directly at odds. So, right. Yeah. So, you know, my sort of ultra cynical take on the way public goods <laughs> are being, uh, are being touted right now is I do think a lot of these things will probably end up being public goods, but people are using, like we asked, we asked Nick this, right? Well, why do you have a token then? He's like, that's oh, not a particularly good form. It's not a particularly good end state, right? For public goods funding. But there was a mania in crypto and that mania allowed us to fund a bunch of public goods basically because they issued the token. People didn't question it. They just bought it. But eventually this is now playing out during the bear market. Saner heads are going to prevail. More probing questions are going to be asked. Protections are going to be demanded from investors. They're going to want to understand, hey, I'm not buying this because so I have the right to make governance decisions here. Like there has to be something else that makes me buy this token. And you know, the good protocols will figure that out and there'll be some sort of balance struck in between returns on the token and mm. public goodness, basically. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is I think it was either Larry or Derek brought this up on the second episode, the Reverie episode, which is who are, who, your DAO has to figure out who they're optimizing for, right? And a lot right. of DAOs are optimizing for the wrong thing. So, and the, I think the point, I think it was maybe Larry brought up like token holders and users are often not the same person. Unlike mm. this kind of original mental model that we had of like, why are crypto networks valuable? Oh, because it's like, it really aligns the user and the, and, and the investor, the user and the token holder. That's actually, that doesn't end up usually being true. So someone like Nick at ENS really has to think about like, are you optimizing for the token price here? Or are you optimizing for the user and building a, building the best platform possible? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I also, you know, one of the other things while we're talking about that episode, one of my favorite moments in the entire season was when we quoted from Wikipedia, the definition of sabotage. And Derek mm -hmm. said that he had actually cut that, printed that out and yeah. hung it above his desk at, <laughs> at Reverie, which is so funny. And I think one thing that DAOs are ultimately going to have to fix is I think people who manage companies kind of know the game that everyone is playing at a high level is just trying to attack and attract and retain talent. And right now, DAOs seem like they are miserable to work for. I, the first half of the this, the season, frankly, was pretty negative. We ended on a much more positive note, but man, it was it was, it was, really it was, it was Hosu's quote that summarized the first half of the season, <laughs> right? Hosu just saying, after working with Maker, I don't want to work with a DAO ever again, or ever I will never again. work for a DAO ever. Yeah, again. <laughs> because A players want to work with other. You want to solve problems, so you don't yeah. want to be do. Inevitably, some level of politics is is going to happen at every organization, but you don't want to spend the majority of your time navigating internal politics as opposed to solving real problems. So that's, you know, DAOs are ultimately going to have to fix that. And I did unfortunately have a takeaway this season where I was like, man, I don't really know how much I would want to get, uh, throw my hat in the ring for a lot of these, a lot of these DAOs. But I think there are, there is, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. There's a lot of potential for, for yeah. some of these. Yeah. What did you think of? Okay. So 
episode three, it was Mika and Treyas. I, I was not on that episode, um, but there was one thing when I, I listened to it about like DAOs are an extension of social networks. That that thought made me think of um, what Jules brought up about like trust layer versus social layer. And mm. um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm curious to, because that, that was the one episode I wasn't a part of with Mika and Treyas. So I'm curious if you had any takeaways from that episode specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think the, basically... I think that episode sort of confirmed a a sort of mental model that I had for DAOs, which is one of the reasons I'm even though I understand there are so many problems with them, I'm still very bullish. It's kind of the DAOs are sort of the continuation of this trend that's already been happening for a long period of time, where you have global workforces as opposed to localized workforces. You have, to be honest, there are pros and cons to this, but relationship between employers employees that feel much more transactional as opposed to long-term relationship based you know my grandpa worked for warlitzer from the day he graduated high school then they gave him a gold watch whatever at 50 years and then he retired from that come i mean that is a completely antiquated concept and i think DAOs are just the most logical extension of that right it's even one more than from from gig work so and, and then the other thing is frankly that covid you know, shown pretty harsh relief on is that, you know, where there's going to be some hybrid going to the future of in-person versus uh, not in-person. And I think DAOs are kind of optimized for that. So I sort of came away from that episode, you know, thinking that DAOs are the logical extension of a trend that's already happened anyways. And mm. there's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out in the interim and some pretty core foundational concepts need to get questioned. But I, I, that's why it just sort of, an extension of what's already happening in the sense that the world's already going global, going remote, yeah. going yeah. right. Yeah. Right. The one thing that where DAOs maybe do something too soon there is so, so I agree with that. That's a good take is um like Jules brought up trustware versus social wear. And like one thing DAOs do is they try to codify everything re yeah. really early on. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes because it's a bunch of engineers, right. And engineers like, famously try to codify everything very, very early. Um, and th like, that's just, I, I don't think you can do that. Like when you think, again, when you think about block works, if we try to codify things that were working in 2018, by 2019, mm -hmm. we would have had to blow the place up. And if we try to codify what happened in 2020, like that wouldn't work today, you know? Yeah, it's so funny. I, you know, one of our mutual friends who works pretty closely on Lido, I remember him describing this to me about six months ago, this idea that you're going to ossify, you know, certain parts of that, of that protocol. And that was going to be a huge advantage to something that you couldn't do in the real world. And I remember thinking, you don't geez, want that's a negative. Yeah. You don't that want is, it is a negative, but at the same time in these last couple of weeks, I don't want to make this about something that it's not, but I've been watching what Elon's been doing with Twitter and to see it get proposed that Twitter was going to limit, you know, the, mentions of other social platforms it was like that is such a radical departure from the promise that twitter made to its early users that i actually kind of do think putting something like that in stone could actually be an enormous benefit you literally can't do that in in oh, any other oh that's interesting yeah i, I sort of i sort of am looking oh, at see, oh, so, oh i i don't think so like i think decisions like that end up that that decision is going to get reversed because mm -hmm that Twitter will just really quickly realize that that was a bad decision and they'll just reverse it. So it's like, I've got, you... I've got, yeah, I've got another one for you. Uh, so Google, I like, take a look at Google, the product as it exists today, 
unbelievable money printing machine, right? It's hard to really pick too many problems with that product. I, for a long time, have like started to feel like Google doesn't do a particularly good job for me anymore. Like when I Google something, I basically get six ads, right? In the form of AdWords at the top. And then I just get a bunch of SEO optimized blog posts. And I've, for a while, I've been feeling like, actually, I get a much better, <laughs> ironic, I know I just picked on Twitter, but I get a lot better. Inf- I've started to search things on Twitter because I get better answers than I do on Google. Like I've started to sort of find Google, it's u- helpful for using websites, but um, it's not, it had departed from originally the way it successfully competed against Yahoo is Yahoo wanted to be the internet. And Google said, no, we actually just want to direct you to where you want to go on the internet. And ultimately like Google outcompeted Yahoo, but then it became Yahoo in a way. Like you can see it with those AMP sites. You know, when you click the first couple of things, you're right, not actually right. going off Google, the platform you're staying on Google. And I don't know if there are ways that where they could have ossified some of the core tenets of their promise. Yeah. They would have had to find alternative ways to monetize. I bet they probably could have figured that out. I, you know, it's hard Ooh, to, man, it's hard to prove disagree. counterfactuals I here. I disagree. Yeah. I disagree. Right. I, I disagree. Like I, uh, okay. So you're talking about, okay. So now on Google, it's a crappy experience because they've got like five sponsored things that pop up. Yeah. It's not that big. You are in the severe, like the, I think a you're in the like severe minority that you go to somewhere like Twitter. Like most people mm. don't go to Twitter. The the other thing is, uh, it's just so much easier to use than like searching on Twitter. If at some point that experience gets worse uh, using to use Google than something else, Google will change that. So it's just letting the free mm. market decide. So like the first time I like, I mean, this is like this overhyped thing at this point already. Like Chat GBT, uh, I feel like like everyone's talking about it, obviously. That's the first, like I, I've searched on Twitter. I use Reddit all the time for search, actually. Like I love mm-hmm. Reddit for search. It's still much crappier than Google though. ChatGBT was the first time you get like one really, really, really concise answer. But it's, uh, so like, but Google, so Google, Google will launch a ChatGBT thing in, in 2023. Like I'm, I'm mm. sure of it because it's just a better mm. product than Google. So you mm. let the free market decide. Just like Twitter is going to let the free market decide about their bad decision. Yeah. I, it just scares me. I don't know. Things. Having built a, not a big, a huge company, but like, you know, Blockworks, like it just scares me to put anything in stone that early on. I hear you, but honestly, like, let's be a little critical and be like, okay, is there anything that I would feel ossifying that, that I would be comfortable ossifying to the promises that we made to our customers? I've got, I've actually have one. I would ossify in, if this were possible to do. Uh, that we're going to continue to put out good content. Like that's a promise that we're going to keep to our, the people that keep consuming Blockworks stuff. Like I'll, pro- I would go and just like promise that because if Blockworks, if we broke that promise, I don't know, we'd be, I, I would feel, I think it would be such a different company at that point. Then I think that's a foundational, foundational hmm. sort of thing. So that's something that I would actually feel comfortable. I'd, I'd put my stake in the ground and I'd say, yeah, we are going to continue to crank out good content. What I promise our business model is going to stay the same. I'm not going to promise our business model. Where I promise that a certain amount of revenue is going to come from here, but I even promise that we're going to continue to do events. Or, I mean, I, I know my heart of hearts, I will always do podcasts. But like, what I promise, <laughs> like the continuation of any specific yeah. product line. No, I wouldn't. But I could promise good content creation. And I actually think, like, like so to your point about Google, Google doesn't seem like they're, it doesn't seem like they're at risk right now. But I, as a user of Google. I, I've seen the quality of their product degrade. It's because they have a monopoly and they're probably 
being extracted for that monopoly at this point. So, you know, it will, I guess we'll have to check back in 10 years to see if they're still a uh, top dog and still, and still winning, or if ultimately there's been someone assumes the promise that Google broke, which was, I'm going to help users, people find information in the best way, uh, you know, that they want to find it where I don't feel like Google's doing that anymore, but mm. let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's move past this. Um, and, and talk about, because this sort of also does get into Jules's discussion about trustware versus yeah. socialware. And again, this kind of plays at that maturity versus a mature, like an immature versus a mature company. And immature companies like uh, startups, it makes sense to do, use socialware to bootstrap, which is you have a couple people at the top and you have all these like, so, like social contracts and promises that you use to build trust in the beginning and get people rowing in the same direction. And that's the quickest easiest way to do it that it makes sense in the beginning over periods of time you know that that should be more sort of set in uh it should be harder to break those promises and that's what trust where ultimately is i think as she was describing it and the example that she used was the governor contract right for voting right. so you sort of enshrine this uh this sense of decentralization and hmm. this idea that you'll have a right in governance and uh, that's something that you can't break that's not a social thing that's a coded in so i thought that was a really interesting idea hmm. did we talk about multi-sigs on that podcast is a multi-sig a would you say that a multi-sig is a trustware or socialware um probably more probably yeah. we didn't i don't think we discussed it but i'd probably put that more into trustware hmm. i think that's a pretty good example like gnosis safe and what what they do you ever tried um, wrang wrangling people though to sign a multi-sig because that's trustworthy. That's, that's so sure. Anyway, that's so sure. No, I, let, let's talk about one of the other big conclusions. This was something that I actually, frankly, came into the season thinking. I exited the season thinking totally opposite. I've changed my view over the course of the season, which is the value of community. We asked a couple of different, hmm. uh, a couple of different people this, and I think it was Jules who actually came out with her flaming hot take. Said community is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> community the meme of community hot. is flaming hot take but yeah she said it was she said it was bs what, what did you think about that i mean i said i said it on the show i was like i agree that community is bullshit but i think that there's something deeper than everyone says they want to build a community um this was when i went on that little rant about like i think there are i think communities are a dime a dozen these days whereas communities used to be, used to be like part of one or two communities right used to be part of like I won't get, get into examples of old school communities because I think you made fun of me when I said, uh, <laughs> you know, your softball, your softball league and your church, uh, you weren't happy with me with those examples. So uh, I thought that was just funny. That <laughs> those are the first two that popped into your head. Uh, Sorry, continue. Yeah. But like now, now people are used to be part of two social or like two social communities. Now you're now people jump from a community. They're part of three communities on, on a Sunday. And by, by the next Saturday, they're part of like six other communities and they drop the other ones. Right. Cause when the going gets tough, the tough get going with communities. And so I would, I would agree with Jules in that sense where I do think that um, it's really valuable is like when you can somehow figure out how to build a cult around your brand, which is like one layer deeper than community. And um, cause that's when you basically like, that's when you basically have this like diehard cohort of people who rally around your brand just because they love your brand. And I think the only way to do that is when your brand represents a bigger idea that's outside of your brand. So mm. that's what I think about community. Yeah. 
I, so I think there were basically the problem with community for me is it's not a defined stakeholder. And what I mean by that is like, if you think about what the different sets of stakeholders are in corporate governance, very clear, well-understood relationships. There are the shareholders, which are there, the principals, they're the owners of the company. There are managers and they, they're supposed to operate the company on behalf of the shareholders. And then there's the board of directors, which sort of sits in between and is supposed to look out and interface and make important decisions on for the oper- for the managers on behalf of the, the, the shareholders. And I just don't understand where community fits into that. Like, what are their responsibilities, right? What are they supposed to get and what are they supposed to give in return? It's just this weird nebulous mob that you sort of make yourself accountable to for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear what you really get in exchange. And I think that's my problem with them. Where I would maybe quibble with you a little bit is on the cults thing is, I don't know. I, I sort of think about communities as in like, <laughs> cults have reflexivity, right? Bitcoin, reflexive. Tesla, reflexive. It's, we're like playing this experiment out in real time, right? Like how good that is over a very long period of time. I will say to maybe counterpoint my own point there, Apple's, got a cult and they've been very long lasting and that's been great for them. The The other way that I sort of think about community though, and this is where I want to transition to talking to like yield farming and incentives. We had a really great conversation with Fernando and Chris about this, but the, the thing about community that I think would be really powerful, and I can't tell if I'm just looking at something that's way too small of a use case, but I'll give you the example of people that have created forums for Excel tricks, right? So yeah. The the Microsoft Office suite is probably the best, most profitable software product in the history of business, maybe rivaling Bloomberg's product and uh, probably better, better. And one of the big challenges, right, of selling this, this software is Excel, PowerPoint. Those are sort of difficult. Those are difficult, right? So you, so Microsoft could have tried to do a bunch of trainings and I'm sure they probably did the bootstrap that in the early days. But what they did sort of do was there's this online community. If you Google like how to do this thing in Excel, there's like a lot, you get an enormous amount of responses, right? From just this grassroots community of people who are, there are these forums and there are even competitions. And I think Microsoft sort of encourages this. There's actually an Excel competition every year, which is pretty funny. But so I think Microsoft kind of encourages it, but really it's this grassroots community thing, which saves them an enormous amount of cost and complexity. And that, I feel like if you were able to combine that with token incentives in some way, that would be extremely powerful, but no one's really cracked that nut. So mm. I don't know. That's that's what I think about community. You want to hear something interesting about that Microsoft strategy, though? Yeah, they yeah. are they are changing their strategy, and they're really? buy, they're uh, no. I mean, it was a good example, but they are buying up and or or launching their own. They're either buying up or buying or or building their own for communities. So, for example, like there are Microsoft conferences all over the world like big group, you know, gatherings of like 10,000 people where it's a bunch of like Microsoft power users. They are now telling those groups, we're going to launch our, those conference businesses. We're going to launch our own Microsoft events or, or just sell to us. So same with, same with the Excel groups. I think that is a short, I think that is short-sighted. I understand why they're doing that. I think it's a poor decision. I just think it's a bad decision. Like you and I have talked, I mean, one of the successful things that you can see happen in real time around like, Ethereum as a community, for instance, and Bitcoin, they've, it has spawned and indirectly created and encouraged these strong media evangelists, right? In the form of podcasts or 
Twitter people or whatever. And it carries more weight because you know, as a consumer of that information, that these people just love this product or this community or this idea or this set of values and this ethos that align with Ethereum or, or Bitcoin. And to have that directly come, I think, from like Microsoft and this totally waters down the messaging and the heft and power of it. I just think yeah. it is a as a poor decision, I think. Yeah. Short term good, because I get it. They're like vertically integrating, but long term bad in my opinion. Yeah. By the way, first brand that I think is gonna have this like cult following in crypto is um is Lens, Lens Protocol. Not the financial advice. Not fun. No, no, I'm, I'm, I i don't like own lens or anything. I just like, I think they've done, I think they represent like a bigger idea than just something in crypto, which I think, uh, and, and honestly I used lens. I do like the team. So really annoying experience. It was like not nearly as good as using web two social, but yeah, they have this like cult following of thousands of people who are going to push this thing into, into work. So, yeah, I yeah. agree. All right. Look, Let's talk about the the big the big conclusion from yeah. the Chris Berninski Fernando yeah. episode was there was there was a, there was an enormous amount there, but you know we were just talking about community and we talked about yield farming because yield farming is one of the things that it was it was a mechanism for getting tokens out into the hands of people. It also I think ended up being a mechanism that encouraged some form of equity financing. Tokens could bootstrap the growth, right, of the protocol by giving out tokens slash equity in the in the protocol, and uh, yeah, it was a very powerful growth mechanism. That has there are enormous problems with that. There was mercenary liquidity where people would just take the tokens, say thanks very much, and dump them, and then remove their liquidity. So it ended up not really doing that much good for the for the protocols. And then also, if you think about it, they're just handing out tokens to people that are going to dump them on the open market. So there's consistent sell pressure on those tokens. It's just a nightmare. So they're reworking that. Chris laid out what he, what I've heard other people on, on Twitter refer to as governance farming, but basically that really what people wanted before was liquidity, bootstrapping liquidity. Now the much more important thing for these protocols is actually people, right? Getting labor actually to contribute to these protocols as opposed to just capital. Um. Did you, did you, I have, I had some thoughts on that. I mean, I, we talked right, about it on the episode, going. but yeah, keep going. My, I'm really divided on that because I deeply believe in it, but I see an enormous amount of problems. The problem being yield farming for all the flack that it got was very simple and capital is very fungible. It had the advantage that capital is fungible. So when you're trying to attract capital, yeah. all capital is equal. When you're out there just trying to attract labor, labor is not equal. It has to be compensated very differently and you have to underwrite that later labor. That's what companies do. And you need an enormous infrastructure to underwrite that labor to the point where it becomes effective. So that's yep. my question. And what I start to see forming is DAOs are basically at the stage where they're like, hey, we've got these grants protocols uh, and we, we've got delegate, but people aren't making very good decisions. We need a more professionalized set of delegates. And they're going to be like, we need more professional type of labor. And I just see that as just like this weird mix of like consulting slash professional service businesses and guilds. And I'm, I like, I'm not really sure what that end state looks like if you really play that out very forward, because then it's like everyone's working basically for a glorified temp agency that's temping them out into these protocols. And 
I don't know. I'm just putting myself in the shoes of someone who's doing that. And I'm like, what the fuck does anyone want to do this? I, this well, just doesn't most sound very nice people, to me. The most talented people won't want to do that. Cause I think the most talented people get passionate about building, building something like being a part of something big, not going and doing a 12 week consulting project. Yeah. But I mean, geez, you, you do see that right in it's, it's a, it's kind of in the zeitgeist of like, Hey, I want to contribute to multiple different projects and I want to, you know, consult around and have my flexibility and be able to travel. So maybe it's not like, but maybe it just ends up carving off a big portion of society where there are actually these people who are willing to make that trade off. Yeah. Right. Cause you don't really build much equity value doing that unless I guess you did tokens and you don't yeah. have that sense of like, I'm taking something from zero to X but maybe you're willing to accept that as a, as a trade-off. And really what we get is these sets of guilds of professionalized labor. And they're the ones that, Where that to play it out though. Like play, play that out. Okay. Someone does a 12 week consulting project for someone and it goes super well. What do you try to do? If you are the person hiring that person, you try to hire them full time. And that's right. like, let's use, let's use Hasu as an example. Hasu kind of bounced around, did some work with like three, three, protocols or DAOs, Maker, Lido, and Flashbots. And then had a huge impact on Flashbots. Really like working with that team. So now he's basically like full-time at Flashbots now. I'm watching what's like happening and what yeah. people are saying. And there are many things that frankly I see happening that I don't necessarily agree with. There, were, there was just a, a couple more things that I wanted to conclude on the, the Chris and Fernando episode and then we can leave it. You know, he was talking about insider rounds, like insider rounds and the ability to like one of one of these one of the craziest things. Remember, we used to talk about this at one point, it, which in retrospect was a screaming mark of the top. Was anyone can get capital? Capital is meaningless. Remember, people used to say this right, not twelve right. months ago. Right. And <laughs> and uh, instead, it's all about like differentiation X Y Z. And people, if you view capital as meaningless, then VCs are basically predatory in that paradigm. Whereas right now. What people don't see, you know, is during a bear market when valuations collapse and no one wants to spend, VCs fund the companies so that they can keep going. And Chris's point is like, hey, guys, those same people basically who are yelling that VCs don't add any value and are predatory are the same ones not buying right now and are going to buy the top next time. Yeah. So, and he made the point that it's cheaper to buy on the public market right now for, for tokens than it is to do like traditional VC for crypto companies. So right. I kind of agreed with him on that. I was like, that's a super fair, valid point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I say there's a non-VC funded company, but I still see the value for sure. You just say so, to someone who's buying the bottom. <laughs> buying the bottom, baby. <laughs> buying the bottom. Um, last point, maybe this is a good point to even just end on for the wrap up is I had actually dropped for this, but basically the value of just sticking around just because mm. you and I got this advice early on from someone that we didn't end up working with, but it was really good advice. And it was, maybe you guys just have to stick around and make yeah. it. And damn, if that didn't end up being the best advice we've gotten from best almost anyone ever gotten. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. Chris said it, then I said it. And then Fernando's like, yep, I got the same advice. <laughs> just stick it out. Stick yeah. it out. Yeah. So. I mean, that is, that, that is the big takeaway though with DAOs. What we see right now with DAOs, treasury management, we didn't even talk about Tarun's episode, treasury management, the governance systems that exist, this isn't how it's going to look in a couple yeah. of years, but you just got to survive as a protocol, play around with governance, figure out what works, what doesn't work, lean into the stuff that works, chop the bad stuff pretty quickly, move on. 
This is V1. I totally V1. agree. I, I actually left the season. I'm really glad we ended on the episode with Nick because it left me feeling uh, just overwhelmingly positive, I think. And it really was. It was pulling it's, teeth to get yeah. anyone to get anything, uh, you know, nice to say. But even for people who I know believe in this stuff deeply. But yeah. the end of the season was with Nick. And yeah, I guess to maybe make sense, give you a little, little bit of a teaser for for the next season. Well, so. let me let me let me ask one last question on Dows, and then we, let's talk about the next season. More or less optimistic on Dows going after this season. Um, more optimistic, but I think almost doing a lot of research and having these conversations and talking to these people, you know how sometimes when you get closer to the problem, it made you like, Whoa, I understand this problem a lot more and there's more to be worried about. I think I sort of feel a little bit like that. And I, I maybe I'll focus that in one very specific lens, which is it has definitely changed how I look at the short term prospects of like uni, the token as an investment, because I don't mean to pick on Uniswap, I think this applies to a lot of, frankly, the dApps that are out there right now. We didn't really talk about the regulatory component at all, but and I don't want to get into it at this point here, but they're all, it, it sort of made me feel differently about those as an investment opportunity, frankly. You could be dead wrong about this, but uh, I think there are some short-term headwinds for that to figure out. In terms of the ultimate future of DAOs, it made me feel super positive. I would agree with that. I think that's a good takeaway. So a fun, fun season. Next season, next season is going to be really fun. Um, want to give folks a preview? I do want to give folks. So first of all, just a, just a preview. Uh, we're actually experimenting with guest hosts for specific seasons. Basically, this is Jason's very polite way of saying, uh, "I've, dude, I've had way uh, more than enough of you." <laughs> this, is, this is Mike's way of kicking me off the show. No, yeah, polite, politely. Put Mike. It's like, dude, I talk to you uh, all the time. This is, <laughs> is a step too far, but. We're bringing on a guest host, and actually, I don't want to announce this person's name because I don't have the final confirmation on it yet. But it would be great because not only is he super knowledgeable about the topic, he's also one of Jason, and my best friends from college, actually, that ended up getting into this space and is now, you know, extremely deep in the weeds, but really, really intelligent. And there's just no one that I'd rather be exploring this thesis with, which is basically we're going to be digging all into the app chain thesis, and app chain thesis sort of starts. Obviously, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about cosmos in general but the app chain thesis is actually bigger than i think just cosmos they're just kind of leading the at the vanguard of it but we're going to be talking basically about really what we want to talk about is how blockchains scale what is the business model that underlines blockchains how are blockchains going to scale and what is the interaction ultimately going to be in between some of the dominant l1s today and i think you know that it hasn't fully been formatted yet but i think exploring the relationship in between specifically cosmos and eth as ecosystems is going to play a big part in the coming season so it's going to be super super interesting super super interesting it will be <laughs> super duper super duper, super duper interesting, interesting. <laughs> yeah actually just if um mike i saw you sent out this tweet but and i've been digging into the app i know i know you kicked me off as the co-host but uh but so but uh you, you had that you had that nice tweet about um like resources for app chains. So if folks have like pieces that they've read or ideas or like questions that you want us to dig into in the next season related to app chains, go, uh, go find Mike's tweet and like comment on that. Also, I just want to say this is, I mean, this has been such a fun season, but 
this would not be possible if it weren't for the sponsors. And I know people always give the sponsors a big plug at the end or at the beginning, but like, I really genuinely, it's been awesome having reserve and avalanche underwrite the show. Um, this is a podcast, so obviously it's free, but this would not be free. And we wouldn't even be doing this if it weren't for the sponsors and they made all of this content possible. So just a huge amount of respect and love for, uh, to, to avalanche and reserve for, for supporting this. And you guys, if you guys haven't checked them out, if you weren't enticed by, our, uh, our enticing ads already, you should definitely go check out Reserve and Avalanche because it's been, um, yeah, they've been building some really cool stuff this year. Totally. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, guys. Well, this is, uh, again, been a fun season. Thanks again to Avalanche and Reserve. And um, yeah, we'll take a couple weeks off and see you, on, see you on the other side. Cheers, guys.